here with Rick Farmelo and the lovely Kelly Maroney. And we have a special guest today, the great Carl Gottlieb here, writer extraordinaire. Carl, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, my pleasure. We are here and we're going to talk about so much. I'm such a fan. Carl has a storied career, and I'm probably starting too late, but you can tell me where it starts. But Smothers Brothers is where I am most familiar with you. That's where we're going to start. That's where I'm starting, where you won won an Emmy. But but what happened before that? Am I missing a lot? Well, I started as an improvisational comedy actor in a company in San Francisco called The Committee. Really? Oh, I know The Committee. Yes, indeed. I was, a, wow. I was a charter member of the committee, and I came with the show to Los Angeles. We opened at the Tiffany Theater, which is now a big hole in the ground, <laughs> and it's sad to see that go. And off the stage of the Tiffany, I got hired, along with some other wonderful, funny people, to work on that 68-69 Smothers Brothers season. Great. Uh, just tell a little bit about, so you uh, Tom Smothers, who was just always wanting to push the envelope, right? Yes. So how did that, how was that to you as a, as a writer? Well, for me personally, it fit exactly into what I had been doing with the committee. We were a topical, oh. satirical company, and we poked fun at the establishment all the time. That was our job. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, it was like an assignment, and act, you know, a lot of actors have to have to prepare in one way or another. Our assignment was to read every current periodical. We read the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, IF Stones Weekly, the Atlantic, Harper's. We read everything about everything so that we could intelligently portray the folly and the stupidity of power. And you still do that to this day. Yes. Some habits are hard to break. That's great. And so when you were in there, and the, and the Emmy that you guys won back then, the writing team that yes. won that Emmy, some, tell us some of the names on well, that, that, that was, for people that, that are this little, this little group of funny people that Tom hired was um, uh, me, Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Lorenzo Music, who went on to create the New Heart Show. Right. Bob Einstein, right. Super Dave Osborne. Uh, John Hartford, who was a singer-songwriter who wrote Gentle on My Mind and yeah. a lot of other yeah. great songs. Was uh, Pat Paulson gone then? or was uh, he? Pat Paulson was there. He had his own writer, a guy named Cecil Tuck, who would just write Pat's material. Wow. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul Wayne, who wrote a lot of mods and, and uh, episodic comedy. Mason Williams, who had... Uh, oh, yeah, Mason Williams. The, the guitar, uh, uh, classical gas, great guitar song. Right. Most recorded song of the, that particular season. Uh, and we were all, you know, young and irreverent, and we just yeah. got our first Writers Guild professional cards on that job when awesome. we joined the union. It was, it was a great experience. And then, because of the troubles tom was having with the censor and all of us had but you know tom was the one who fronted the show uh the show was canceled 
but we had already been picked up for the for a fourth season. Uh-huh. And while the trial was pending over whether they were wrongfully terminated or not, they paid us for the fourth season. Nice. And we never had to write a single show. <laughs> it was it was really a great to That's get that your check. Season, right? Yes, I, I loved I love that season. They had season. I can they... point my finger at all kinds of great sketches I didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> they had Smothers Brothers had this weird mix where they would put an old act and then they would put young music and stuff like that. Do you have any favorites that you remember that you wrote well, for? Well, I, I, I did a lot of stuff for, uh, you know, when Joan Baez was on the show yeah. and Pete Seeger. Uh, and then then we would have, uh, we would have, we had Liberace on the show at one yeah. point. And, and, you know, he was a, a real showman, a great trooper. He was a lot of fun. We poked fun at him and, and he went along with it. Uh, and the season before, they had had George Burns and Jack Benny on the yeah, show together. Yeah, the, the They had everybody. Jefferson Airplane was on the show. Uh, the, we had a one show. There was a musician strike. So the singers who were not on strike sang all the orchestral arrangements. They did the, the theme song for the show. They did wow. background for that Nelson Riddle would normally have conducted with the orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The singers sang it, and the guests on that show were uh, Donovan, George nice. Harrison, oh. Jennifer War- Jennifer Warrens, and Dion, and the, and the committee. Oh, like, my, so my, my little company. Great. It was, it was a, a great evening at CBS. That, that is great. Oh, Carl... We're up against our first commercial, so we're going to take a break. And we come back, we have so much more to talk about. We're going to talk about Jaws and the Jerk and Ringo Starr and all kinds of neat stuff. <laughs> when we come back at Rick's Martini Bar. Let's swing on down to Ricky's Place, where the girls are refined and the men have good taste. Are back. Hope you enjoyed that commercial. I, sh- I know I sure did. I'm going to go out and buy that thing, whatever it is. I'm getting two. You're going to two. That's that's two sales right there. We've talked these two into doing something. We'll be good. We're back with Carl, the great Carl Gottlieb, and we are we are discussing his career. Unfortunately, we don't have as much time as we'd like with him. But uh, where, where should we skip? We've, we've done the Smothers Brothers now. Should we talk about what happened between that and? What, if you want to talk about between what happened between that and Jaws, that's yes, great. Yes, after, after the Smothers Brothers show, I uh, did a couple of more uh, musical variety shows on television. I sh- did a show called Music Scene with uh, Lily Tomlin's first appearance on tel- network wow. television uh-huh. before Laugh-In. Mm-hmm. She got Laugh-In as a result of the show that she did with us cool. and David Steinberg. Yep. And Larry mm-hmm. Hankin was on that show. Yep. And we did essentially... We did Saturday Night Live, you know, six years earlier because we were doing comedy sketches and name musical acts. It was a updated version of Your Hit Parade. Okay. But instead of having, you know, Snooky Lanson and Giselle McKenzie singing <laughs> the, the hits. I miss Snooky. A little, a little bit I miss him. We, we, had we get another Snooky now. It's a completely different kind of person. No, not at we, all. We had the original artists. Yeah. Whoever had the hit on the Billboard chart, that's the artist. And if they're had the same, if they number one for four weeks, they'd come back and do the same song? That's what killed our show. Yeah, because I can imagine. the first three weeks we were on the air, we had a great line and we could Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. If you have to hear Winchester Cathedral four weeks in a row, <laughs> you know what? You know. The, you know what number one was for four weeks in a row? What? And we had to think of something to do with it. 
Sugar Sugar by the Archies. The Archies. Oh. It's a Ron Dante, right? And there Did were Ron no Dante Archies. Yeah, that's right. There was no, there no, weren't. It was, it was a studio made band. Up, made up band. It was yeah. Ron Dante doing the lead vocals. Yeah. And I don't know who the studio people doing Right. And, and, and we yeah. had to come up with something to do for that song. <laughs> oh, wow. And New York kept telling us, no, no, we got the Archies. They're coming. They were, <laughs> they, they, they They'll were, be here any minute. They were scrambling. So we, we wound up doing, you know, musical numbers and having, you know, uh, pantomimes and, you know, uh-huh. sketch stuff interlarded with uh, music and the Archies. And that show, it, was, it wasn't really an epic hit, but it was number one three weeks in a row. The first three weeks we were on the air. So we had to do it because that was the whole premise of the show. Number one Billboard tunes. And then after Sugar Sugar, it was Yummy, Yummy, Yummy was, yep. right? <laughs> that was a big yummy, hit, right? Yummy, yummy, so I've got love in my a, tummy. Kind of a rut, kind of yeah. a sugar rut, I think. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we had Buck Owens and Johnny Cash and Jimi Hendrix wow. and uh, Chuck Berry. Uh, we had you know, wonderful acts. Yeah. And Janis Joplin was on with, with uh, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. She did three songs for us. Wow. And uh, the artists were wonderful, and we, we did comedy. So I did that, and then I did commercials for a year and a half, two years. I aired only on The Tonight Show. They were live, you oh, know, wow. kind of live on tape. Cool. And they rolled into The Tonight Show. And then I was the story editor on The Odd Couple. And I, oh, wow. Well, right. I, I was writing sitcoms, too. I was a freelancer. I wrote a New Heart show, and I wrote a, a, a All in the Family premise, a storyline, not the whole show. Uh-huh. So I, 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 uh, um, I, I did that stuff. And then I was story editor on The Odd Couple when my friend and, and a, a client of the same agent, Steven Spielberg, was new in town directing television, trying to think of things to do. Uh-huh. Uh, the two of us would go out and pitch stories that we, I was going to write and he was going to direct. And we had an ambitious agent, Mike Metavoy, oh, who yeah. Mike said, you know, of course, as we pitched, he would say to the producers of the studios, if you, you buy this, Stephen is locked in to direct. And we lost jobs because of that. Because <laughs> really? Nobody, nobody wanted to uh-huh. take a chance on the new kid. Well, he did some night gal- a couple of night galleries. Night galleries. He did, he did some, that, yeah. uh, some Columbos. Yep. He did Name of the Game. Yep. He did two, two movies, one of which predated The Exorcist, but was the exact same subject material, a possessed little girl. It was mm-hmm. called Something Evil. And then he did, I think, they, a pilot for a Martin Landau, Bob Rebane dramatic oh. series after they Spin got off, off of, of Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, after they got off Mission Impossible. It was uh-huh. called The Savage Report. They played crime-fighting journalists. Oh, wow. Didn't, okay. didn't go saw anywhere. That. Yeah, no, it, it's, it was a 90-minute movie of the week. And oh, I see, okay. Uh, what they called in those days a backdoor pilot. Ah. And then he did Duel. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, which made his reputation in Europe. But after he finished Duel, he was already an auteur and a star in France. I have postcards that I bought in France in 1972 or 73 with Duel on um, you know, the oh, poster cool. for Duel. Wow. Uh, and then uh, he directed his first feature, which was Sugarland Express yep. with Goldie Hawn and, yep. and Bill Paxton. And critical s- success, yep. not a popular hit. Wanted a big blockbuster movie. He wanted a, he wanted a hit. Mm-hmm. And Jaws was a novel that was a big hit as a novel. And the script, uh, a version of the script, was on Zanuck and Brown's desk. And Zanuck and Brown had produced Sugarland Express, and they liked Steve, and they believed in him. And he saw the script and said, you know, who's, who's doing this? You know, I'd like to direct this. Wow. And they said, okay. And, okay. And, <laughs> and the rest is history. I'm guessing that because the shark didn't work, 
Jaws is more you than it is Peter Benchley. <laughs> you had to be writing stuff every day when the shark didn't work, right? Yes. What we did was, uh, if, if you read the novel and see the movie, you'll realize that most of what we did was cut. We kept you know, concentrating on a single storyline. And even the one complication that might have worked that was in the novel was that the oceanographer has an affair with the police chief's wife. And we were, when we started shooting, that was like still in the script. And we were weighing the value of it. Well, it's a, it gives you a good tension if the three of them are on the boat and one of them has cuckolded the other. You know, it, it, it could be, uh, it could add something to the tension. But then we were watching the performances of Dreyfus and Lorraine Gary, who, who played Ellen Brody. And there was no way that this couple was going to cheat. I mean, they were just such nice people. And Lorraine Gary was such a warm and loving, you know, good wife. And Scheider was a decent family guy. And Dreyfus was, you know, just obsessed about sharking. So that subplot went out the window along with a whole lot of other subplots. And then when the shark wouldn't work because of mechanical issues, because they had never tested it in salt water before they got to the vineyard, we had to come up with other stuff. And the reason it was easy for me and Stephen to do that was we both were fans of a movie called The Thing. Yes. Which is a black and white horror movie where, you again, you don't see the monster until quite late in the movie. So we said, well, The Thing worked. Now, why did how how did that work? Well, you saw the results of the creature. Mm -hmm. You saw implications of the creature. They had the device of a... I think it was a Geiger counter, so that if the creature was around, you'd, the, the mm-hmm. Geiger counter would tick faster and faster, and you'd, you know, every time they opened a cabinet, you go, oh no, it's going to, and, uh, uh-huh. and it wasn't there. <laughs> so we did, we did the same thing. We said, okay, you've got to show the power and the terror of the shark with actually, without actually showing the shark. And Stephen devised that incredible opening killing where, you know, the audience is kind of lulled into a sense of security because uh-huh. they've just, just seen some underwater footage and here's some nice teenagers on a beach having a party and two go off to canoodle in, in uh, skinny dipping and then the girl gets destroyed. Just like yanked. I mean, it's like such a violent, yeah. you know, pulled, yeah. pulled below yeah. the surface. Uh, Susan Backliney was uh, the first victim. And at the fan shows... Uh, she's very popular. I mean, there's you know legions of fans who love her. I mean, she had you know a total of maybe three minutes of screen time, most of which was screaming in, yeah. in the water, and everybody remembers her. Uh, and she has the little caps that she sells, along, <laughs> and that say "first victim." <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Carl. Thank you so much. We have one more episode to go after this commercial, but we're so honored to have you here. This is awesome. Thank you for being here. We're going to be back in just a minute with the lovely Kelly Maroney, Carl Gottlieb, Rick Farmelo, and me at Rick's Martini Bar. Let's swing on down to Ricky's place Where the girls are refined and the men have good taste. So here we are. I'm Kelly Maroney, and we're back with the great Carl Gottlieb. And we're so glad Kelly's here because it would just be three old white guys talking. <laughs> As I was saying, we're back with the great Carl Gottlieb. And I want to ask you, what is a story that you wish people would ask you about that you never get to tell? I guess the the uh, 
the the woman who slaps Roy Scheider. Okay. We that was a very difficult scene to write because the emotional content of that scene is is pretty heavy. She makes this dramatic entrance in a black veil. You don't know what she's going to say, uh, and I had to write what she was going to say. And how do you write dialogue for a mother who's just lost her child and has to confront the guy whose actions created the circumstances that led to the child's death? And she basically lays it on him and gives him a proper guilt trip. And, you know, the line that I wrote that she repeats and and says a couple of times, but my boy's dead. I wanted you to know that. Mm. And it's the first time it sinks in on Scheider, you know, what he's done and and what his responsibility is in in the larger scheme of things. And nobody ever asks about that scene. I wonder why. And wasn't there a point when you were worried about how this was going to all come together? Well, yeah, the, uh, the, the, we had kind of deconstructed the plot and had worked it out, Stephen and I. We were sharing a house, and we had started rewriting the script three weeks before principal photography, which is not oh. a good time to start rewriting a movie. And we had to throw out a lot of scenes and a lot of subplots. Uh, the only... Uh, physical limitation. We couldn't write any new scenes that required new scenery because there was no time to build anything or even find a location and get a permit. So I had to work with existing scenery. Uh, and we you know, struggled to get it all together. And then when we had a story, it was essentially an outline written on three pieces of typing paper, scotch taped together to make one long strip of story, you know, starting scene one and going down to the end. And that was the only paper that had the movie's entire plot on it. Wow. And the department has the property. And we couldn't show it to people and say, right. yeah, <laughs> here's our movie. Here's, here's, this is the movie. So, you know, people would be asking for pages. And we had this wonderful production meeting, which is, you know, the last big production meeting before the start of photography, where you go through the script scene by scene, and the production manager and ADs and line producer, you know, just make sure every department knows what's going to be needed on the set and where we're going to be. And here's Stephen and I, who together maybe added up our age to 45 or 50, <laughs> talking to a lot of guys who are by themselves 60 <laughs> and have spent 40 of those years in the movie business. And with the absolute certainty of youth, we just said, nope, skip that. We're not going to be at the lighthouse. Cut the scene with the shark at the, you know, at the other beach. And we need another set of actors for this. And we're going to be over here. And we're not going to do the karate school. And you know, just deconstructed the film. And then we had to write it. You directed a really funny movie called Caveman. Yes. And was it 81? Uh, yes. With Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr, Barbara, Barbara Bach, Bach, Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid. And John Matuzak. John Matuzak. Who's one of my favorite Raiders. The, the, the twos. So tell us, if you just give us like 30 seconds of, uh, of something about either working with Ringo or making that movie. Because that was a really funny movie. I really liked it. I'll, I'll give you just a, a Matuzak yeah. story. We're, okay. we're in uh, 
Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, shooting the waterfall scene. Mm-hmm. And it's the chance for the cast to unwind. We've been shooting for six weeks in Durango, Mexico. Everybody's gone crazy from right. that location. Right. Here we are in a nice hotel with a swimming pool, and we throw a cast party so everybody can loosen up. And Tuz loosens up as, yep. as well as <laughs> anyone. Do, yeah. And starts throwing lawn furniture into the pool. <laughs> He's picking up gigantic cast iron chaise lounge and tables. You know, cast iron yeah. poolside furniture. Yeah. In Mexico, they take that cast iron seriously. Uh-huh. And, these, you know, like it's nothing, like it's matchbox wood. He's uh-huh. lifting it over his head, throwing it in the pool, and one of the hotel security guys and the, the AD comes over to me and says, Carl, can you do something? Because I played the role of the coach in his life on that movie, uh-huh. and you always listen to coach. You don't right. listen to anybody right. else, but you listen to coach. So I said, John, John, what is it in mid in mid toss? I say, yeah, just just put that down. So he puts it down and he comes in and says, Yeah, yeah, right, boss. And then he comes over and everybody's relieved and kind of going back to partying and having another drink. And as Tuz passes me, he said, I I didn't really want to do it, but it's expected of me. I hope that we get to do another episode with you because we haven't gotten to your acting career, oh. which is very illustrious. We haven't gotten to the jerk. We haven't. We haven't gotten to. We haven't gotten to the Jaws log. All these things. All of these things. So we certainly hope that you'll grant us another episode. I'm Please. happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. Yay! And if people want to talk to you, I mean, you got so much. How do people hear about you, talk about you, find out where you'll be? I'm, I'm Twittering. I'm, I'm tweeting. Come to your house. What's your address? <laughs> <laughs> or come, come by the house. Bell. Bell. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, and I'm on Facebook. Awesome. So thank you so much for being with us. And, yeah, I do hope, Kelly. I hope you're right. I hope we get another chance to talk again. And thank you so much. So for... Carl Gottlieb, great Carl Gottlieb, the lovely Kelly Maroney, and the irrepressible Ricky Farmelo. I'm Jerry McCarty. Cheers! Yay, Rick's behind us. Let's swing on down to Ricky's place. Where the girls are refined and the men have good taste. A subtle joke, a touch of class. Poured in a tall martini glass Let's swing them down To Ricky's Down to Ricky's